The sermon text this morning is Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I think it's probably intuitive to most of you that um, the last words we were to say or we would say to people would be important to us. That if you had a a, a time where you're parting with a friend for a long season of time or even facing death, that those words that you would choose to say to the person I think would be quite significant. You would not speak about the trivial. You wouldn't be speaking about the superficial. You would want to say things that are heavy on your heart or of encouragement to you. You'd be specific about what you want to say. Well, we have Paul's last words here at least last words before the benediction that we're going to see next week. And, uh, and, and you notice a change in the tone. I mean, there's a clear change in tone. We went from this delightful kind of greetings of the first part of this chapter, and then we come to these dire warnings about this, um, you know, being aware of false teachers and false teachings. You know, he, he's, he wants the church, you know, think about it, his, his last words, he wants the church to maintain unity. And so he gives this warning about these false teachers. He, he pauses, if you will, he pauses from the greetings, and, and he says uh, to be aware of these things. I, I think he does it because he, he loves us. One author kind of said it's Paul's last loving appeal to them. Like, kind of like brothers and sisters. Maintain unity. Be warned about these false teachers. Surely they're going to come. But he does more than warn us in these few verses. He also encourages us with instruction. We're going to see that in verse 9. He instructs us. And then what he does is gives us a promise in verse 20 uh, to hold on to. So you see a warning, you see an instruction, and you see a promise. We'll look at each one. And these really make up his last thought that he wants us to walk away with. So look with me at the warning here. Look in 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. <clears throat> Pretty stark language here. He's saying watch out. That word for watch out is kind of scope. It's like you, you turn a scope to get a mark on that target. He's saying watch out for those who are going to come and they're going to bring false doctrine in, which is going to lead to division. He says stay away from them. Keep away. Avoid them. I mean, they're not to be given a platform for you to listen to. You're not to greet them with a holy kiss. You're not to extend Christian hospitality to them. You're to, to be dividing from those who divide. So, I mean, it's a pretty sharp word here. Avoid them. Don't give them an ear. Don't harm them. Don't be harsh with them. You don't even have to speak to them. You are to avoid them. You're to divide from them. Now, who are these people that he's talking about? Well, we don't know for sure. 
We don't know. But we do know some of the characteristics, right? It, that they sow division. They, they create obstacles or impediments. Uh, they kind of work against the progress of your faith. We don't think they're from outside. It's not some sort of outside persecution. Probably from within. Kind of, they're already in the fabric of the church and they begin to espouse contrary doctrine. Now, we've already been through 14 and 15. I don't think he is speaking about those non-essential matters of, of education or what you do with food or drink or the days of worship. In, in 14 and 15, we know that there'll be differences in the church. We know that there'll be differences here. We have, we have differences in parenting. We have differences in understanding of money, entertainment. We have differences at a lot of levels. But in those chapters, if you remember, Paul doesn't speak about avoiding them at all. In fact, he says, be one with them. Unite around those secondary differences. This is different. Uh, th this is differences of doctrine. Now, what's, what I want you to understand is um, a lot of skeptics out in the world will say, you know, our understanding of doctrine or what we believe is really different than what it was for the apostles. The doctrine has kind of evolved over the years and it's really changed. And, and I would say not so according to this text. Doctrine hasn't changed. Uh, the, the, the set of beliefs that the historic church has believed has remained the same. You see that in Romans chapter 6, 17. He says, but thanks be to God, that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, there is a standard of teaching. Paul speaks about in 2 Timothy that there's a pattern of teaching. There is a set of core beliefs that we've always believed. An interesting book, Michael Kruger uh, wrote a book on um, second century Christianity. And, and it's a really incredible book because he traces out that when the first generation, those who saw and heard the ministry of Jesus, when they began to all die out, then would the same doctrine make it through the next generation? It was a critical time where the church could have just gone off rail. There's plenty of other teachings around at the time. Uh, but, but his argument is that, no, there was a standard core set of essential beliefs that the early church had from the New Testament that was passed on correctly in the second century and then on even to us today. So what he's saying here is, Avoid those teachers who begin to teach something contrary. Now, what is this essential doctrine? Well, it would naturally be the nature and the character of God. It would be about the person of Jesus Christ, his divinity and uh, with his humanity. It would be about the atonement that Jesus Christ alone has come to save. That he himself has taken upon himself our sin and shame. And that, that man is depraved. We're broken. We need a substitute. We need a Savior. By faith and repentance, we're saved. The Holy Spirit, the nature and work of the Spirit would have been part of that essential belief. The nature of the Scriptures would have been part of that essential belief. So when someone comes along and teaches something contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, then avoid them, is what he's saying. In other words, we need to have a clear God-centered theology if we're going to have a God-centered unity. Now, you may want to ask, well, who are those false teachers today? Well, to give you names probably wouldn't be helpful because the doctrines, the false doctrines, keep cycling from generation to generation. They have different names espousing them, but they're generally the same. Let me give you just a few. 
you know, if, if you look at, let's say, a prosperity Jesus, this is, is low-hanging fruit, right? Uh, that in the atonement, in the death of Jesus, you have entitled to you, by faith, wealth and health and prosperity. That's something that you can have and you should have uh, by faith. It's yours. They don't speak as much to the nature of the atonement or the nature of sin and the forgiveness of sin through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's more about how Jesus is making life really good right now. We call it an over-realized eschatology. It's trying to pull heaven into today. And yet Jesus says, in this life you'll have trouble. So there's the prosperity Jesus. There's the political Jesus. The political Jesus is kind of a, whatever your political platform is, Jesus has the same one, surprise. And people who are on the other side are then the enemies of Jesus. So Jesus is a Republican, and everybody else that stands against that are against Jesus. That, that's a false understanding of what Jesus is and what he's come to do. Or, or you could have the, the moralist Jesus, that, that, if, that Jesus has come, and he's showed you how to live, and he's died to show you what love looks like. And you just have to follow that, and you'll be okay. It doesn't speak about the nature of sin, the nature of the holiness of God, and the need for this divine reconciliation. So they come in all shapes and sizes and flavors. The point of it is that these teachers are going to come, and they're going to teach a doctrine contrary. And here's their motive. You see their motive in verse 18. In 18, he says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, in other words, the motivation here is clearly themselves. This is the idea about serving their own appetites. They are not looking at the glory of Christ. They're not loving growth in the church. They want to be promoted. Now, it may be for monetary purposes, as you see many of these TV preachers. It may be for place or popularity or position. Uh, but their motives are not to serve the church for the benefit of the church and the glory of God. But it's more about themselves and their own platform. That's their motive. But look at their methods, because they're pretty strategic. It's with smooth talk. And flattery. Now, that word for smooth talk really means kind of making a plausible argument. You know, kind of, they give you an argument and you're like, well, I guess that kind of makes sense. Plausible argument and smooth talk, or, or the um, flattery, the word for flattery really is just our word for kind words. So they come and they're persuasive and they're winsome and they're articulate. Don't think that most heretics are going to come bold and brash and arrogant. No, they're very nice people, actually. They're very nice and they're very winsome and you'd probably like them and they probably are easy to listen to. Jesus said they would come. In Matthew 7, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You can imagine, it's like a flock of sheep. They're all huddled together. That's the church. And those outliers, th those people who are maybe naive or maybe they're uninformed in the scriptures or perhaps they... They don't know, they're new Christians, or they haven't really done much with the faith that they've had. They kind of sit on the outside, and they become easy prey. They seek to deceive the naive. Now listen, these false teachers have a father, and their father is the father of all lies, the father of deception. You, you trace it back to Genesis chapter 3. The same smooth talk, the same good words, the same plausible arguments are given, 
and the naive are consumed. This is, this is the warning here about the false teachers. Do you hear this as a warning? Do you hear this as a loving warning? I hope you do. I hope it isn't strange to you. I hope that Paul, who loves the, the growth and the health of the church, you'd hear this as a, a good warning. Not an admonition, but, but a good warning. And do you realize how susceptible you might be? Have you considered that? You know, Paul did say in the 15th chapter of Romans, he said they were filled with knowledge and they were full of goodness, and yet they're not immune to this kind of treachery and trickery. Now, that's something that you, that this is a warning that you have to embrace for yourself as individual Christians. He says, I appeal to you brothers. Now, I think this is clearly a place for the leadership of the church, the leadership of the church, you know, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that's under your care. I think there is a protectional element. This is why we have a new members class. You know, we, we put members through the class so that they understand what we believe and we understand what they believe. This is an effort, not, not at vetting so that they would be like us, but we want to make sure and protect the flock. And so we have new member classes, we have new member interviews. They sit down with an elder. And they speak about their faith. Tell me about the gospel. Tell me about how you've come to faith in Christ. This isn't meant to be an intimidating thing at all. It's meant to be helpful both to the church, but also to the person here. But at the end of the day, the church has that protective element, but you listen to voices all the time. Many voices are speaking to you. And do you understand the importance of knowing the essential doctrine and following it? In other words, you have that responsibility. You don't want to fall into this trap of, well, we want to be a loving church here, and doctrine can be so divisive. I've heard that a thousand times about doctrine divides. We want to be a loving church, and we want to be a truth-filled church, and they're going to go together. Because here's the deal, what Paul's warning us, if we don't have right doctrine, we won't have unity. And, and if we don't have unity, we won't have love. So I want to encourage you, uh, wherever you stand, you know, we espouse good, strong doctrine. We want you to learn the essentials of the faith. We see that there is a subjective element to the Christian faith, the affections that we have for God, and there is an objective element. There is a historical Jesus who came down as the God-man to die for our sins, to redeem us and all creation back to the Father. There is strong doctrine that we want to have. So, so the first warning, the warning that you hear, is simply this, is avoid those, don't give them a place, don't give them your ear, avoid those who bring a doctrine contrary to what you have learned. Uh, but then he follows this warning with instruction. He, he wants to help us heed the warning. And you see that in verse 19. In 19 he says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So Paul warns them. He gets our ears all perked up. And now he brings this word of instruction to us. And, and what he says is simply this. He says, listen, your obedience is known to all. Paul, I think, is just naturally an encourager. He says, your obedience has been known to all. So the Roman church actually was known beyond Rome. They were probably a very faithful church. But, but what does he mean that their obedience is known to all? 
Does that mean they were really great at keeping the rules? They were really good at following all the guidelines? I don't think it means that at all. We've already seen that expression in chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to see it next week in chapter 16, 26, when he says that their obedience is known to all. He's saying that their obedience in the faith. Now, what does that mean? They're obedient in the faith. Does it get back to rule keeping? No, I think what he means is that they're obedient to what the faith demands, which is faith. They believe. In other words, to be obedient in the faith means that they are no longer seeking to find favor with God through their efforts to keeping the law, but they're trusting in this finished work of Jesus to save them. It's a resting, it's a trusting in the goodness of God to provide a Savior for us so that I am no longer trying to work my way to God, climb the rungs of the ladder as all the other religions espouse, and I'm going to rest in one who has come to save me, and I'm going to let my affections grow for him. So when it says that their obedience was known to all, they were known as a church that loved Christ, that trusted Christ, that rested in Christ, that the hope of their future rested on this Savior. But notice, as strong as they are, he wants them to still do something, right? They're there, they believe, they're saved. But then he says, but I want you to be wise in that which is good and innocent in terms of that which is evil. This is like proverbial wisdom here, if you will. Kind of Jesus gave the same thing about being innocent as, as uh, being um, wise as serpents and gentle as doves. It's just proverbial wisdom. It's kind of like uh, J.B. Phillips translated this, be experts in the good and be beginners in evil. What he's saying is that as we are growing in Christ, that we should be quick to identify what is good and holy and right and pursue that. And we should also, in the decisions of our life, we should be able to identify that's, that's not good and avoid it. That that ability should be growing in the Christian. No, it just should be leading to greater and greater holiness and therefore happiness. That we're not stepping into the same sin over and over and over. We've identified it. We want to now avoid it. If this is good, this is right, and I'm going to pursue that. In other words, Paul's saying that even though you're obedient in the faith, you need to continue to grow in that. That there isn't a static place for the Christian. You're always growing. Maybe fits and starts, maybe two steps forward, three back sometimes, but you're moving. Now, if Paul were to write a letter about this church, would he say that our obedience in the faith is known to all? Or do you think that you're obedient in the faith? I mean, I mean, do you find, because this is really the defining mark between the religious and the Christian. The religious person believes in God, understands transcendence, and he is striving to make sure he ends up at the right spot at the right time. The Christian understands God, understands transcendence, but he recognizes that there is no way he can prove God or he can prove himself to be faithful and good and right before God. And what he does is he just humbles himself and he says, you know what? I am a sinner through and through, but he's a savior through and through and I'm trusting him alone. That's what it means to be obedient to the faith. Are you obedient to the faith? Where does your hope ultimately rest on that day that you'll take your last breath? Will it rest in his work? looking for him when you open them on the other side of life? Or is it going to be what you did in the last three years of your life, for 10 years, 
really is a defining mark. So are you obedient in faith? And if you are obedient in faith, are you growing in faith? See, Paul's saying that we ought to be growing wise in that which is good, and we ought to be growing innocent in that which is evil. In other words, we should be able to hear teaching and say, is that in accord with Scripture? Is it contrary to Scripture? Is that teaching glorifying Christ, or is it glorifying the preacher? Is that teaching leading me to holiness and righteousness? This is the reason I ask you the question every year, do you love Christ more at the end of the year? I'm going to be doing that in a couple of months, so just a heads up on that one. <laughs> the reason I ask you is because we ought to be growing. And if we're not growing, that's a problem. If you had a child, and the first year, not much growth, second year, not much growth, third year, not much, you wouldn't wait three years to find out why the child isn't growing. There is an expectation in the Christian faith that we grow. And so there's kind of a warning here to us. And the, the, the warning is against, the, really the warning is to those who are apathetic or naive. In other words, if you think, well, I've come to faith in Christ when I was younger, and I haven't experienced a lot of growth, that should be like a kind of a red, red alarm going off, kind of waking you up. And the reason I say that is because we don't live in an innocent age. We don't live in a neutral culture. These days are evil. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5. That doesn't mean evil in like the way the world may think of evil. In other words, the culture is against God, its own creator. So, so, you know, one author said it this way. You don't live your Christian life in a lake. You live it in a river. Rivers have currents and rivers have drift to it. And, and, and you don't just, if you're in a river and you're not swimming, you're moving. You just may be moving in a way that you don't want to move. And, and so the point of it is, and that's why the writer of Hebrews, which is really a, a letter to the church to persevere and to not grow stagnant. Chapter 2, the writer says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So think of what he says there. It's really interesting. He says, we must pay closer attention to what we've already heard. We already know this stuff about the gospel, but you better pay closer attention to it, or you're going to drift away. You're going to kind of slide down the river with the current. We too often neglect the salvation that he has brought to us, and we just kind of drift away. When was the last time you considered, for example, you sat down and you meditated, just as one example, you meditated on all that God has done for you in Christ. So, so you thought about that, that he's come, he's laid down his life for me. He's taken upon himself my sin, so I'm forgiven. I have access to God. I've been given the Spirit. He's taken the very wrath of God from me. He has given me promises that I will never be separated from him. Even if I have cancer, even if I die, I'll never be separated from him. The promises of being with God forever are mine forever. I mean, wh when have you thought through those beautiful truths of the salvation that he has earned? And when have you thought through them long enough that your heart begins to be moved with, he really does love me. He really has done an incredible thing for me. We don't want to neglect the beauty of our salvation. I think many of us struggle with this complacency, this kind of ambivalence. I don't mean to say that you don't care. It just doesn't seem to move towards any sort of movement. And, and so let me just try to give a gentle admonishment here, and particularly for you men. You know, I was thinking, so many times men, we, uh, get stuck. 
and we kind of just don't seem to make any traction. And there always seems to be reasons for that. Now, we're still caught up in other things. We're committed to all kinds of other stuff that's distracting. And, and it got my mind thinking, and I don't know, you know, I remember in Peter Pan. Remember Peter Pan, what he says? Peter Pan says, I'll never grow up, never grow up, never grow up. Not me, not I. Never grow up. You know, when computer games or pornography or climbing the business ladder, or for women perhaps it's, it's body image or fill in the blank, when you see this pattern of never growing up, we have to grow up. There is the threat of drifting away. There is the threat of just, uh, just beginning to, you start in the church, then you go outside the church. You know the elders, every other week when we meet, we go through the letters of the alphabet. We usually take two letters each meeting. And we go through the membership of this church name by name. We pray for you. How are you doing? What's going on? Have they been... Are they struggling? Do they need help? Do they need prayer? Uh, are they beginning to kind of slide out of the circle? A and then out of the group, and this is why I think it's helpful, we don't have the lists anymore uh, under each elder. We kind of do it together because when we go through these names and we say, well, I can call so-and-so. I, I have a good connection with them. Well, I can call so-and-so. It's not to chase people down. It's to shepherd, to love, to lead, to protect. That's what we seek to do so that you don't drift so far away that by the time we call, you're done with the church. Now, I know some of you here, you might be thinking, yeah, well, Tom, I've tried. I'm just dead to God. I mean, I just, I, I don't want to read the Bible. I don't have a desire to read the Bible. And I, I came to Christ. I thought it was real. Now I don't even know if it's real anymore. And, and how do I handle that? You know, what do we say to that person? What do I say to you? Well, let me, just give me about three minutes to try to explain something about the Christian faith. There's two reasons, usually, why people get into a place where I had come to Christ, I am a Christian, but I've had nothing of a desire for God for many, many years now. Uh, two reasons I would give you. There are probably more, but let me give you two. One could be persistent sin, that you just wallow in that which is unhelpful and ungodly. And, and you just wallow in it, and you just like it too much. Sin is pleasure. If it wasn't, we wouldn't all be doing so much of it. So, so you just wallow in it, and it just kind of corrodes, and it kind of eats away at the work of God in your life. So persistent sin. The other answer would be deficient view of salvation, that you may not fully understand what the Christian life is about. So let me try to explain it real quick. The way the Christian life works is this way, that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And God, for his own purposes and glory, wakes up a soul. Our eyes are open to our sin, his glory. We repent of our sin, and we place our faith in Christ. We place our faith in him with the grace that he gives us to believe in him. Now, this is what we call a monergistic work. It's a monergistic work. It's a, uni it's a, um, a mono, one, God working at waking the soul. God's spirit moving along that valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 36, and life comes to the dead bones. So God wakes us up by his spirit, through the gospel, by his grace. Boom, that happens. You're born again. Now you're a baby. 
Now you begin to grow in the faith. This is what we call a synergistic work. This is a work where you participate with God in the growth. In other words, you engage the means of grace that God has given to us. Asking for power in the Spirit, reading the Scriptures, praying, being in fellowship with one another, attending church, worshiping God, all these things, all these mundane kind of, all that is meant to move you towards growing. It's a synergistic work because like Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to do and will according to his purpose. You see us participating with God. So a lot of times, if you're struggling with any sort of growth, have you been engaging in the means of grace? Now, I'm not saying I read the Bible this morning, I feel really close to God in the afternoon. It doesn't work that way. It's the ongoing evidence of faith by using these various means of grace to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. So envision it like a fire. You know, you have a fire. God ignites the fire by giving you his spirit, waking you up to Christ. You're called to bring wood to it. Uh, bringing wood is by engaging the means of grace. You don't bring wood to it. Why, why is the fire going down? Oh, that's weird. Was it because you're not bringing. It's a participatory, th participatory thing now. We engage with God in this. It's God doing the work, but our faith is evidenced by engaging in these means of grace. It'd be no different than you sailing. You take your sailboat out, you motor out to the middle of Chesapeake Bay, and, and then breeze is blowing at 12 knots. It's going to be a beautiful sail, and you're sitting out there wondering, what you not really a great day for sailing. Someone comes along, well, you may actually want to raise the sails. You just might want to do that. The sails go up, they get filled up with the wind of the Spirit, and you begin to move. So, so I, I want to explain to you that, that many times people say, yeah, I, I just don't feel close to God. And when I begin asking questions about, are you engaging in the ways that God has, it's no different than the guy sitting on the couch wondering why he's not in better shape when he's eating Twinkies every day and never exercising. I mean, that kind of makes sense to us. We kind of giggle at that. It's like, you might want to back away from the Twinkie, Twinkie, and you might want to move to the gym. It's the same thing. And so what he's saying here is this warning to vigilance. It, it, the instruction is to move forward to the good and to become innocent to the bad, to the evil. But then look what Paul does in 20. Because he's given us a warning, he's given us an instruction about persevering, growing in discernment, growing in wisdom, and then he speaks to us about this idea that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. This is a promise he's given to us. I mean, the foundation of your hope is right here in verse 20. It's that this God of peace. Now, it's an interesting juxtaposition of a God of peace with crushing. Why does he put those together? Well, he puts those together because God will bring a perfect peace through the crushing of Satan. He's going to crush. In other words, the only way that God's going to bring peace to his creation is by vanquishing Satan and all evil with him. Now, he does say he will do it soon. So how do we understand soon? Did Paul get his timing off? Is Paul thinking a month or a year? And it didn't happen? I don't think so. You can translate soon as suddenly or quickly. In other words, he may be saying that God will crush him suddenly or quickly or decisively. That's what I think it means. That he will bring a crushing blow at the end to Satan. Finally vanquishing all evil. 
and he'll bring a perfect peace. And the peace that he's going to bring is not the absence of conflict, it's going to be the presence of shalom or harmony, where God and man are reconciled fully, enjoying one another, walking with God in the cool of the day. It's kind of Eden rebuilt is what we have. Eden restored. Man and creation will be in harmony with one another. Now, you know, the promise that Paul gives us in verse 20 has its roots in a promise made long ago. God made a promise to Satan that one would come from the woman who would crush his head. He says it in Genesis chapter 3.15, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, the seed of the woman, the son that would come, and he shall bruise or crush your head. You shall bruise his heel. This is the gospel promise that God had always promised to deliver us through a son who would crush the head of Satan. And that's what we see in the New Testament. He did crush the head of Satan. He did through the cross. This is the nature of the gospel. Paul gives words to it in Colossians. He says that he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. All of our sins stood against us. Legally, we are guilty. He says he canceled it. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross brought forgiveness to us, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So at the cross, Satan was destroyed. He was dethroned. This is why theologians will tell you that when Jesus ascended, he ascended visibly. Why? Because the king of glory was going through the territory of the prince of the air. He was going through Satan's land. I am now victor over all. That's the crushing of Satan. Now, we still live in the context of evil right now. Satan has not been fully vanquished, and that's why I think he says he is now going to trample him under your feet. In other words, Christ continues to defeat Satan, but now through the church as we take up the armor of God and we proclaim the word of God. That's why you're going to see, even in a video, you're going to see, following the sermon, the nature of how the name of the Lord Jesus Christ still redeems the captives from darkness, even the darkness of Islam. That's why you see the church exploding in Iran, a place that would not be favorable to the growth of the Christian church, and yet it's exploding. How so? Christ is still victorious. He's trampling Satan under our feet as the word goes forth. This is what Revelation says when he says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So we're still in this battle. And I think that's why he puts that little benediction at the end. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You need the grace as you take forth the message and as Satan continues to get trampled until that day where finally he will be thrown into a lake of fire and all evil will be destroyed. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I think it still resonates with you, I would imagine, that you would long for that day where evil would be destroyed. There'd be no more abuse. There'd be no more sickness. There'd be no more harm. I mean, don't you long for a day when injustice will be squashed? I mean, most people, Christian or non-Christian, they would love a day. You know, because we all know what that perfect world is, and yet we know we'll never see it on this side. 
And if you're here and, and you feel that way and you are not a Christian, I would say to you that would be an indication that you have been made in the image of God. You do, under, you do understand transcendence. You do understand things that are not your experience. You have desires and loves for things that are not your experience. And C.S. Lewis speaks to it this way. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we've been made for another world. That's true. I, I would encourage you to consider the beauty of Christ because this God of peace will come back and he will crush, finally, Satan. But he'll also stand opposed to all those who have not repented, who have not sought forgiveness for their sins. If that's you, you have this God of peace who will bring peace, but it will be through judgment. And I would encourage you to consider your life and what you will say on that day to this God that comes back. Of course, the response is repentance and faith that you would repent of your sins. You would ask forgiveness for a life lived, maybe not in high-handed defiance to God, but just in apathy to him. In apathy for 50, 60, 70 years, the one who's given you breath and you haven't given him much of a thought. You want to reconcile that before, the, before you stand before him. To the Christian here, I would say two things. Don't ignore Satan. Don't ignore these this world with devils filled. And I hope you're not embarrassed over the, this kind of language of devil and devils. You know, m many of us think, well, it's part of the enchanted forest, pre-scientific age, middle ages. And Jesus believed firmly in it. Paul does. I do. There are, there is a devil. And there are devils. And we don't want to be ignorant. I, I don't want to be in fear of them. Lo, his doom is sure. We just sang it. But I don't want to be ignorant of his designs. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be captive to the thought of them, but I don't want to be ignorant of them. Paul says this way, he says, uh, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. And present darkness, I love that. It's not a future darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So let's be aware of that. Let's not be ignorant of him, but let's not give him too much due. But I would say, I would, say, I would ask you, not just be ignorant of the devil, but to be mindful of this day that comes. Marvel with me over the end of history. I mean, think through the picture here. And the God of peace shall soon crush Satan under your feet. There will come a day, and, and, and Carol uh, will often say to me about that day, she goes, she goes do, you, do you think about the day? Uh, there'll be no more hospitals. There'll, there'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more injustice. There'll be no more racism. There'll be no more abuse of women or children. There'll be no more conflicts and wars and death. I mean, you think about There'll be no more prisons. There'll be no more inequality. There'll be no more... People being snuffed out of life at a, a young age or constantly being unfairly treated or many of the people of this world suffering under unjust government. There'll be no more of that. Is that not a day to think about? I mean, I get excited about vacation next year. Should this not just cause me to, 
to revel over that day and to think about it and to meditate. No more suffering. I mean, life for many of us is just a long record of suffering. No more. Because it'll crush it all. It's a day to think about, a day to marvel over. So here, Paul's last words are filled with, it's a warning to not listen, to not give ear, to avoid those who introduce a doctrine contrary to what you've been taught and what you're learning, and and to, to grow in wisdom. Don't be like Peter Pan. To grow in wisdom as to what is good and, and to grow in innocence as to what is evil. And then, and then to dwell on that day, to marvel over the final day. Folks, this is the stuff that helps us to endure well and to finish well. So let's take a minute now and just perhaps ask God, if, if you're not a Christian, ask God to reveal himself to you. He is the God of peace. Ask him to give you peace through his son. Others perhaps maybe repent of apathy or seek God for greater desires. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.